Now, I grew up in a church where there were just certain men that were, in essence, priests. But one of the emphases of the Protestant Reformation is that we are a kingdom of priests. The priesthood of the believer. That all of us do not have to go through some man, but we can go directly to God, directly to our great high priest, that we have access to the throne of God as believer priests. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in a study of the book of Revelation, and today we conclude a message from heaven, a look at chapter 1, verses 4 through 8. We've begun looking at the salutation of this letter, and in verse 5, we see Jesus listed as the firstborn of the dead. Let's join Pastor Brogy now as he explains what this terminology means. He is the firstborn of the dead. This simply means that he is the very first to come out of the grave in a resurrection body. Now the word firstborn is a word in the New Testament that speaks of supremacy. And Jesus shows his supremacy over the grave. Now this is confusing to some because they say, well, there's other people who are raised from the dead. Well, actually eight to be specific in the Bible. Here's a chart of them. Remember Elijah raised the widow of Zarephath's son. Then his predecessor, Elisha, raised the Shunammite woman's son. And then if you remember, there was a man who is thrown into Elisha's grave. And as soon as he touches Elisha's bones, he comes back to life. He's raised from the dead. Jesus, if you remember, raised the uh, widow of Nain's son. Jesus raised Jairus's daughter. Most famously, most of us know that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Peter raised a woman by the name of Tabitha, also nicknamed Dorcas from the dead. And Paul raised Eutychus from the dead. Eight resurrections in the Bible. But all eight of these eventually got old or sick again. The Bible doesn't tell us. And they're buried in some grave over there in Israel. But Jesus, to use Paul's words, was the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He is the firstborn of the dead because all those people were raised to life. Jesus was resurrected to life. He was the first one ever to come out of the grave in a resurrected body. And John is going to want you to see him in his resurrection body here in the first chapter. And by the time you are done, you will have, if you don't already, a different perspective of Jesus. John laid his head on the breast of the Lord Jesus there in the upper room for the Last Supper. He was the beloved disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. His uh, half-cousin, so to speak, we know from the Scriptures, probably grew up with him. They were either playmates or he was like an uncle to him, and they had a close relationship. But John will fall down like a dead man when he sees Jesus in his glorified body. Notice also in verse 5, he is further described as the ruler of the kings of the earth. Now the world and its rulers do not recognize that Yeshua is the ruler of the kings of the earth, but he is. They do not recognize Jesus as king, but that is our confession as Christians, that he is king. And that's how Messiah is described in the Bible. Think about it. In Psalm 24, he's called the king of glory. In Daniel 4, we studied it. Christ is called the king of heaven. At his birth in Matthew 2, where is he who is born king of the Jews? In John 1, he's called the king of Israel. In 1 Timothy 1, he's called the king of the ages. 
In Revelation, the 15th chapter, he's called the King of the Saints. In Revelation 19 and verse 16, he's called the King of Kings. Now, when you look around, it doesn't appear that Jesus is reigning. But the Bible teaches he will reign sovereignly while he is in control in heaven. He is coming again and he will literally reign upon the earth. And these dear Christian brothers who say that the church has replaced Israel, that we're the new Israel, that Jesus is not actually going to come to the Mount of Olives and put his feet on it and rule and reign here for a thousand years, spiritualize the scripture. Do you remember what the angel Gabriel told Mary at the birth of Jesus? When she finds out she is pregnant by the Spirit and he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. That never happens yet, but it's going to happen. And we believe it by faith, not because we feel it, but because God says it. But the Bible is clear that even now, behind the great movements of history, there is one who is ruling and there is reigning. John Revelation chapter 6, John writes these words. There's coming a day when the peoples of this world will recognize it. Listen to what is going to happen during that seven-year period. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. They recognize that what is happening is happening by the hand of Jesus. Revelation 11.15 says, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever and so the king of kings, the ruler of the kings of this earth, is going to come again. He is the faithful witness. He is the firstborn of the dead. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth. And John's going to unfold this for us. This is just the introduction. But he's also our savior. Look further into verse 5. To him who loves us and released us from, uh, from our sins by his blood. Now, some of your translations put it to him who loved us, past tense, and released us, past tense. But that's not in a single Greek manuscript. And the reason some translations do that is because it is improper English to mix a present tense with a past tense. And if you had real English, uh, and I only had one real English teacher in school. Her name was Mrs. Ryan. We called her Rat Ryan. I shouldn't say that, but that's what we called her. She was 91 years old. There was no mandatory retirement, and I'm glad she was still moving. And she taught me at least a little English. It helped me when I got to the seminary. But she would put red ink all over your paper if you mix a past with a present or a future with a past or whatever. No, you don't do that in proper English. And so some, following rules of grammar, put two past tenses. But as in the New American Standard here, it's so precise. The first word is present. Notice he loves us. And the second word is he released us. Now that's important. Very often when we think of the love of God, we think of it in the past. For God so loved the world. Or Paul will say that he loved us and gave himself for us. And that's important to recognize. But it is equally important to recognize that God is actively loving you. That whatever circumstances you are going through today, whatever people may have done to you and even abused you, 
God is actively loving you. You say, I don't feel that. Look, I don't see visibly with my eyes that he is the ruler of the kings of the earth, but by faith, because God says it, I believe it. And because by faith, God says he is actively loving me, I believe it. Because faith is not a feeling. It is built on the word of God. So understand that. And even if you can't fully conceive that, just look at this past love. That God demonstrated his love for you and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Not to mention, if you have been saved, the love of the Holy Spirit has been poured out into your heart. But the verb is at present tense because God is describing the fact that he is constantly, continually, forever loving you. And that's important for these Christians especially to know because they are under persecution and God wants them to know I'm very much in tune to what is happening in your life. To him who loves us, notice, and released us, past tense, do you see that? From our sins, how? By his blood. We are redeemed with the blood of the Lamb. Why? Because the penalty of sin is death. The life is in the blood. You lose enough blood, you're a dead cookie. If God's judgment says our sin deserves death and the life is in the blood, therefore without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And so God released us. There's a debt that you had before God and God released you from that debt, from every sin you've ever committed or might even commit. He's released you from it with a shout of victory on the cross. He said, to tell us die, it is finished. And when we come to Revelation 5 and verse 9, all of heaven will be praising God for the precious blood of Jesus. I hope you've met God through his blood, because that is the only way you can be saved is by his blood. Not by your human effort, not by your works, because your works can never meet the penalty death. But only the blood of Jesus can cleanse you and meet the penalty for sin. He breaks the power of canceled sin. We sing that. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. Have you been able to say, I've come to Jesus for his cleansing power, washed in the blood of the Lamb? If you can't, you need to, because there's no way you will be able to face the Lamb of God in love. Otherwise, you will meet him as your judge. And he made us, referring to these true believers, the bond slaves already mentioned, he made us to be, notice, the next designation, a kingdom, priests, to his God and Father. The Lord Jesus washed us with his blood, but he didn't stop there. The Bible said he made us a kingdom to be priests of our God. Now, that's unusual. It's unusual to have a kingdom of priests. Usually in any secular kingdom, there are just a handful of people who are priests. The whole kingdom are not priests. And in the only true Old Testament priesthood, namely in Israel, there was only men who could be priests. They could only come from one tribe, and they could only come from one family in that tribe. And those priests who were involved in the sacrificial system could only go into the presence of God once a year, and then only for a very short time. So nearness to God, as we've studied on Wednesday nights, in the Old Testament economy was very, very limited. But God wants you to understand that he has made us a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a kingdom made up of priests. Now, I grew up in a church where there were just certain men that were, in essence, priests. 
But one of the emphases of the Protestant Reformation is that we are a kingdom of priests. The priesthood of the believer, that all of us do not have to go through some man, but we can go directly to God, directly to our great high priest, that we have access to the throne of God as believer priests. And so once a week, sometimes once a month, I would go into that little confessional and the guy would open the door and I'd say, bless me, Father, for I've sinned. It's been three weeks since my last confession and here are my sins. And I was told that he alone could absolve me of my sin. But the great blessing of the New Testament is that we are believer priests that you don't need a pastor or a priest or anybody else, that if you have been saved, God has made you a member of a royal priesthood, and everyone in his kingdom is a part of that, and you can go directly to God. I heard about a man who was Baptist talking to his Catholic friend, and he said, I want to ask you a question. I'm trying to understand your Catholic faith. He said, let me ask you a question. When you sin, who do you confess your sin to? He said, well, I confess my sin to my priest." said, okay, and I thought about it for a while and satisfied him. And he said, well, let me ask you another question. He said, when your priest sins, I mean, he does sin, right? When, when, when your priest sins, who does he confess his sin to? Well, the Catholic responded, yes, he sins too. And he confesses his sin to his bishop. He said, okay, that satisfied him for a while. And he thought about it. He said, well, wait a, wait a minute. When the bishop sins, who does he confess his sin to? He said, well, he, he confesses his sin to the archbishop. Oh, that satisfied the man for a while. He said, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. I know the archbishop is getting up there, but I assume he sins too. Who does he confess his sin to? The Catholic man thought for a while. He said, well, he confesses his sin to the cardinal. That satisfied him, and he thought about it. He said, no, no wait a minute. Does the cardinal ever sin? Surely he must sin too. So who does he confess his sin to? He said, well, that's easy. The, the cardinal confesses his sin to the Pope. He said, now, I mean no disrespect. And I know you call him the Holy Father. But surely the Pope must sin. Who does the Pope confess his sin to? He said, well, um, I guess he goes directly to God. He said, you mean to tell me the Pope is a Baptist? <laughs> now, my friend... You can confess your sin this morning directly to God Almighty. We can directly go to our great high priest, the Lord Jesus. He has made you a kingdom of priests. He's released us from our sins by his precious blood. And to him, John just breaks out in praise. Be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. By the way, this doxology linguistically, grammatically goes back to Yeshua, Jesus. We are only to praise and worship God. But here is John praising and worshiping Jesus because he indeed is worthy of glory and dominion and praise forever and ever and ever. He's just so overwhelmed. He can't but break out in praise. And sometimes when you ponder the goodness of God, you can only do the same. And remember, this would be a huge comfort to these persecuted saints and to John, who's on the Isle of Patmos. He, in essence, is implying, listen, I've just heard 
from the heavenly emperor. I've just told you about Father, Spirit, and Son. I've heard from our heavenly emperor in Domitian, you're not it. You are a ruler. You are a temporal ruler. But you are not the ultimate ruler. And he wants them to realize that someday the kings of this world will understand that. Now these are not theory. This is truth. It's speaking of him who loved us. And so we read now in verse 7, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it, so it is to be. Amen. Now remember, this is wrought with Old Testament. And so he uses two Old Testament passages. You might want to jot them down. We studied one of them, Daniel 7, 13, where Daniel has these night visions where Jesus comes back on the clouds. And Zechariah 12, verses 10 through 14, a prophecy of the second coming of the Messiah. And so John is reminding them, and he starts this verse with, Behold, when he says that, he's saying, listen, pay attention. I was reading one of my older books in my library this week from the 1800s, and occasionally out in the margin, the author would have this hand printed out in the margin. If you ever seen an old book, you see this hand out in the margin. And that was the way they said in the 19th century, what I'm going to say on this page, this is probably the most important thing, so pay very, very close attention. So when John says, behold, he's saying, pay attention to what I am about to say. He is coming with the clouds. Not he will be. Please note, he is coming. He uses a future present, a prophetic present. If you were with us in our series on Romans, we studied the prophetic past tense in Greek. And in that great unbroken chain of God's love for us, it talked about how he predestined us past tense. He called us past tense. He justified us past tense. He glorified us past tense. Wait a minute, I'm not in my glorified body. But he uses a prophetic past because he wants them to know that everyone who's been predestined, called and justified, will be glorified, that our salvation is so secure that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Here he uses a future present. He's saying this is so certain. He is on the way. He is coming. And it is so certain. I'm using a present sense to describe like he's already on the way. And when it happens, notice, every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and... All the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. This is referring to the prophet Zechariah, to the crucifixion, to the one who is going to be pierced through. And the Bible teaches, as we will learn in the Revelation, that the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, are going to believe on Yeshua as the Messiah during the seven-year tribulation. They are going to realize that the one they pierced through was their Messiah, that they crucified the promised one such that when they see him, that's not when they are converted. That would be inconsistent with the way God works, like giving some people a benefit that he doesn't. They're converted during the tribulation period. But when they see him whom they have pierced, the Bible says they will mourn. Let me read it to you. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one who mourns for an only son, 
and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping of a firstborn. They will mourn as one mourns for his only son. And the Hebrew word here for mourn is a word that is used exclusively of someone who mourns over someone they love. And when you lose someone whom you deeply love, you mourn. But in this case, they are not mourning for themselves. They are mourning for Yeshua, for the one whom they pierced. And it's a reference to what the Jews are going to do. But in this verse, in the Revelation, John applies it not just to them, but all the tribes of the earth. Why? Because during the tribulation, people from every trunk, tongue and tribe and nation, people who have never before heard the gospel in power and clarity, for those will be the only ones who will have a chance, not people like yourself who have heard the gospel before the rapture, but those who have never heard it, and they're going to see him too, and they will mourn. And I'm sure when we see our Savior at the rapture, and we see his nail-scarred hands, we say it, sing it, rich wounds yet visible above, even in his glorified body, that we too will mourn. Like one would mourn for his only precious beloved son. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. Now don't miss this. The promise of the second coming is vital for the believer. He is coming with the clouds. Where does he get that? He got it from the book of Daniel. Daniel 7.13. There he has a vision of the Messiah. I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. In Acts 1 and verse 9 on the Mount of Olives at the Ascension. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on and a cloud received him out of their sight. In Acts 1.11. The angels of God say, men of Galilee, why, are you why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who's been taken up from you into heaven will come in the exact same way on a cloud as you have watched him go into heaven. And Jesus states the same thing in Matthew 26, quoting the prophet Daniel. I tell you that hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, clouds throughout the Old Testament, if you know your Old Testament, are associated with God the Father, with Yahweh, with His deity, with His greatness. But here in the Revelation, God will associate those clouds with His Son because to see Jesus is to see the Father. And the Bible here says, every eye will see Him. This is a reference to the second coming. At the rapture, we meet the Lord in the air. But when he comes again, and I suppose God will use the technologies of the world, the internet, your smartphone, television cameras, for every single eye on the planet to be able to see him. Or maybe he'll just show himself magnificently across the skies. I don't know how he will do it, but every eye, every person will see it. And John says, so be it. Amen. Amen means agreed. Yes, it's going to happen. Amen to that, he says. He's saying this is not a guess. This is not some fabricated thought. This is the blessed hope. This is the promise of God for his people. And then he says, hearing the voice of the Son again, I am the Alpha and the Omega, 
says the Lord God who is and was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, if you have a red letter edition of the Bible, you will see this is in red letters. Now, understand this is important. Because in verse 17, Jesus will say, I am the first and then the last. And in Revelation 22 and verse 13, he will say, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Same description here in verse 8. The first and the last. Same description in verse 1 and verse 17. The beginning and the end. Why is this important? Because God describes himself. We've already seen in this greeting. The Father says, I am the one who is and who was, and who is to come. But now Jesus is referred to as the Lord God and as the Almighty. Because Jesus is no ordinary man. He is the God-man, and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is indeed Lord. And when he comes, your heart will be broken because you will recognize it is not simply the Jews that pierced him through on that cross. It was not simply the Romans who put the nails physically on that cross. The Bible says he was pierced through for our iniquity. It was our hard hearts that were the hammers. It was our sins that were the nails. And we will mourn like one mourns for their only son but we will praise the Lord and be so glad He has come as our Redeemer. Now this is glorious news for the believer, but there's a different kind of mourning that will come upon the unbeliever because when they see Him, they will recognize He's not coming as their Savior. He is coming as their judge. And they will mourn with weeping and gnashing of teeth for all of eternity. That's not God's design for your life. You can laugh at this. You can mock at it. But just as every single prophecy came true for the first coming of Jesus, every single prophecy will happen for a second. And we would be wise to call upon Him in faith. Now, our Father, we thank You that for me to live is Christ, but to die is a great gain, and someday we will realize that gain. But in the interim, you have called us, even this week, to care about people, about where they are going to spend eternity. We can't care about everyone, and so with Paul, we pray for an open door of opportunity to share the gospel. I pray today for someone who's listening to me, wherever they may be, someone who's unsure that heaven is their home and your word teaches they are unsure because they've not put their faith where you put their sin on the cross. That you redeemed us with your blood, Lord Jesus. Help them to see that your cry of victory, it is finished, it's paid in full, is true. That they cannot add to it. That if they will come and believe what you've promised, that because you did what you did, whoever will call upon your name, you said will be saved. Help some dear soul, some man, some woman, some boy, some girl to say, Jesus, save me. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you receive sinful people, that you came into the world to save sinners. Now help us as those who've been bought with a great price to live for you in every respect. May we grow in grace as we study this revelation that you've given to us and love you more fully because of it. And we ask it in your holy name. Amen. To listen again to today's study entitled, A Message from Heaven, 
Use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also get a CD or DVD copy by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program REV2. Tomorrow we begin a look at a vision of Patmos as we continue our study of Revelation. Join us then as we search the Scriptures. Scriptures.